0: Our scripture reading is from the book of Acts as we continue our study through Acts. We are in chapter 13. We'll be reading verses 13 to the end of the chapter. So Acts chapter 13, verse 13 and following. Hear God's true and eternal word. Now when Paul and his company loosed from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia, and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets... The rulers of the synagogue sent unto them, saying, Ye men and brethren, if ye have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Then Paul stood up, and beckoning with his hand, said, Men of Israel, and ye that fear God, give audience. The God of this people of Israel... Chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with a high arm brought he them out of it. And about the time of forty years suffered he their manners in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he divided their land to them by lot. And after that he gave unto them judges about the space of four hundred and fifty years until samuel the prophet and afterward they desired a king and god gave unto them saul the son of kish a man of the tribe of benjamin by the space of 40 years and when he had removed him he raised up unto them david to be their king To whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. Of this man's seed hath God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus. When John had first preached before his coming the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and as John fulfilled his course, he said, Whom think ye that I am? I am not he. But behold, there cometh one after me, whose shoes of his feet I am not worthy to lose. Men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, and whosoever among you feareth God, to you is the word of this salvation sent. For they that dwell at Jerusalem and their rulers, because they knew him not, Nor yet the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath day, they have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause of death in him, yet desired they Pilate that he should be slain. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulchre. But God raised him from the dead. And he was seen many days of them which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses unto the people. And we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us their children, and that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, This day have I begotten thee. And as concerning that he raised him from the dead, now no more to return to corruption, he said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Wherefore he saith also in another psalm, Thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on sleep, And was laid unto his fathers, and saw corruption. But he whom God raised again, saw no corruption. Be it known unto you therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him all that believe are justified from all things, from which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses." Beware, therefore, lest that come upon you which is spoken of in the prophets. Behold, ye despisers, and wonder and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which ye shall in no wise believe, though a man declared unto you. And when the Jews were gone out of the synagogue, the Gentiles besought that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now when the congregation was broken up, many of the Jews and religious proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who speaking to them persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. And the next Sabbath day came almost the whole city together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and spoke against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you, but seeing ye put it from you, and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. For so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set thee to be a light of the Gentiles, that thou shouldst be for salvation unto the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad, and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was published throughout all the region. But the Jews stirred up the devout and honorable women. And the chief men of the city and raised persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them out of their coasts. But they shook off the dust of their feet against them and came unto Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Ghost. Amen. We open our Bibles again in Acts chapter 13. And in verse 13, we begin a new section. Um, in our study through Acts, from time to time, we see a um, series of firsts. We, we have um, recently uh, this list. We, we have seen the first outpouring of the Holy Spirit um, among the Gentiles in chapter 10, with a conversion of Cornelius and his household. And we saw after that the, the planting of the first church in Antioch of Syria in chapter 11. We saw, sadly, in chapter 12, the first apostle who was martyred. It was James, the brother of John. And that followed in chapter 13, where we are, the first missionary journey, where Paul and Barnabas set forth, and the first place they go to is the island of Cyprus, from the east end to the west end, and from Cyprus they go to the south part coast of Asia Minor. And this is where we are in in verse 13 of chapter 13. We we have read about Paul preaching in, in Damascus, in Jerusalem, in Antioch, in Cyprus, but so far all we've had have been summaries, very short summaries of what he has preached. Um, We we read that in Damascus he preached Christ in the synagogues. That he is the Son of God. That that was the theme of his sermons there. Always the intent of proving that the Lord Jesus is the Messiah. Um, That was in chapter 9 verse 20 and verse 22. um, Proving that this is very Christ. Um, we, We read that he preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus and we also read in chapter 13 that he preached the Word of God in Cyprus. But now we have more than a summary. We, we have, in a sense, a sermon. And this is a list. This, in essence, is the third preacher whose sermon we have. We've had a couple sermons of Peter. We've had one sermon of Stephen. And now we have this sermon of Paul. And mainly the, the bulk of this message will be looking at that sermon that it may, that it may be used of God to, to preach to our hearts today as well as we look at his very message. And our first point will, will simply look at, at the reality that these are missionaries now into Asia Minor, this new location, and just looking at some principles regarding their, their travels. And then secondly, we'll look at Paul's message. And, and we give it already its theme, the message of salvation. That, that's why the theme of this sermon is the word of salvation. This is how Paul um, mentions it in, in, his, in his preaching. He refers to the word of this salvation in verse 26. So everything that he's proclaiming, yes, it's about Christ. And what about Christ? Well, this is how you are to be saved. It's a word of salvation a message of salvation. That will be our second point. And our third point, we'll we'll look at the response of the people, the response to Paul's message. Um, So first of all, the missionaries to Asia Minor. We consider the travels of Paul and Barnabas. Um, They, as I mentioned, have have arrived from Cyprus into the coast of South Asia. Um, the the south coast of Asia Minor that's modern day Turkey kind of the very center of today's Turkey and we have this little remark without any explanation without any detail that John departing from them returned to Jerusalem Um, we, we won't Delay here with, with a lot of hypotheses of, of why he departed. We, we only will note it because later on we, we will realize that this departing was not just a matter of fact departing. It was not like an emergency departing. It was, it was, there was something negative about this departing to the point where Paul doesn't even want to take John Mark in the second missionary journey. So the only thing that we can consider is that something happened in Cyprus um, either in the relationship of these missionaries but very likely in regards to the ministry itself that proved to be a challenge too great for John Mark at the moment and he returns home. Um, we we do know that what happened there that would have been of of moment was their um, contact with that man Bar Jesus. Remember, Paul even called him a, a child of the devil, one full of subtlety and mischief, perverted. That he perverted the ways of righteousness. That he was seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. And what what you find in that is that there there would have been. Um, conversations with this man and not just conversations, probably very sharp argumentations. And even though it was clear that the Lord blessed Paul and Barnabas through causing this man to be temporarily blinded, it's there there's still something very shocking when you have to see this face to face with evil encounters. And there might have been others who who were showing their rejection of these Um, missionaries. So we don't know exactly what it was. But we'll return to to John Mark when we see that Paul doesn't want to take him. But we just mention it mainly here. But what they do now is from the coast they travel around a 100 miles north to a mountainous region and they arrive um, in Antioch of Pisidia. So another city called Antioch, the one that they left Their their mother church is in in Syria. This Antioch is almost in the center of today's Turkey, a little bit um, to the west of the center. Um, One possible reason why they went there, there, it is known that that deputy, Sergius Paulus, who was very interested in the gospel and who believed in Cyprus. He was known to have relatives in this Antioch of Pisidia. So it is possible that he would have given endorsements or even asked, could you go to that land? I have people there. I have loved ones. Maybe he, they had letters of recommendation. And again, we, we're not sure, but we do know that he has kin people There. And then just one more note before we we go to our second point and look at the message is is this dynamic that begins here where where we see him arriving um, at the synagogues and that becomes the pattern of Paul's ministry. He arrives in a city and if there are Jews and if there are synagogues that's where he goes first. And at this very beginning it's obvious that he's still not so known and there are some places that maybe they already have an understanding of of what they think might be a trouble making person that he is but it seems like right now there's there's an acceptance they even give him the floor to speak And this was very providential. It it was used of the Lord to have a ready audience. And and you've been noticing in our reading that it wasn't just purely Jews who were present. When we we read of the God-fearing Gentiles and the proselyte Gentiles, these were people from the Gentile world who were interested in the God of the Jews. And Paul would go in those places first and begin... His, his ministry. And so in, in verse 13, um, to the very end of the chapter, we, we will focus in, in essence what, what is the preaching and the result of his preaching. If you separate this whole section, it's those two portions, his message and then the effect of his message or how people responded to his message. And and one way of application as we come now to our second point, Paul's message of salvation, we're we're, we're not just merely looking at this message to analyze it in an academic way. We we will hope to look at at its theme and its structure and and the essence of this message, but with a desire that, that it would be in essence the sermon today that this would be the message that we have. Um, I'm preaching this portion of Scripture. I, I, we arrived in Acts 13, verse 13, where where we arrive at a sermon of Paul. So I will not preach another sermon if we have this sermon before us. And even as we have this sermon, let it preach to your heart that that the words that are in this passage, the exhortations that are given may it be that you respond the right way. Because even as we arrive to our last point where we see the response, every single person here, boys and girls and young people, fathers and mothers among us, we, we are either on one group of how they responded or the other group. The other group, when, you, when I say the other group, I'm thinking of those who did not believe. Yes, there's an array There are unbelievers who are very mild and there are unbelievers who are persecutors. But see, they're all unbelievers. They're all rejectors of the message that Paul was giving. And, And the message that Paul was giving is the message that I am giving. I don't have my message. My message is the one that's in God's word and it goes to your heart. And how will you respond? Will you be part of those who have faith or part of those who are in unbelief? Part of those who receive Christ or who reject Him. And so let's look at Paul's message. And we're calling it the message of salvation because that's what he calls it in verse 26. Men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, and whosoever among you feareth God. See, because the Gentiles were there too who feared God. To you is the word of this salvation sent. And beloved, you know, this is scripture. This is to you. We would add all of you inhabitants of this North New Jersey area. Or who have come to this place and to hear this sermon. To you is the word of this salvation sent. This is how the gospel comes. It always is well meant to every soul who would hear it. And then you must before Almighty God respond. And may it be in the right way. Which is... Believing in the Lord Jesus. So what is the theme? We're going to look. Looking at the sermon, there are two portions. There is, and, and, and this is the precious thing, we're, we're seeing here too, why we do the things that we do. Why do we have points and applications in sermons well this is what this sermon has it has its body it has its exposition and then towards the end he brings some application so we're going to look at the exposition and we'll we'll look at the applications that Paul makes and, and this is why we preach this way. We, when we preach sermons, we're, we're not really inventing anything new. We're, the, 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 the essence of the sermons that are to be preached in churches are supposed to be um, copies, as it were, of the very format of God's Word. Um, why would we invent something as if we could invent something better when God has given us a pattern that is inspired? And so He exposes and then he applies. And let us look at his exposition. It's in his exposition that he brings a theme. That's the first thing that we're thinking of. And, and I've spoken of it already. The theme is in verse 26. That these are the word of salvation. In verse 32, um, he uses, you could say, another phrase to, to speak of this theme. He, it, glad tidings. Look at verse 32. And we declare unto you glad tidings. See, that word glad tidings is, is like an overarching word saying what his sermon is about. So there, there are these two words. this sermon, these are the words of salvation. And another, another synonym to that is glad tidings. And the word glad tidings come from that Greek word euangelion, which means gospel, the good news. Um, this is what... The theme of this sermon is it is the good news of salvation let's talk a little bit about the structure about this sermon and now like I mentioned we have now three different preachers and their sermons and we start putting them together and we see a beautiful harmony Um, this sermon of Paul is very similar to the structure of Paul a Peter's sermon especially the one at Pentecost and also Stephen's sermon just before he was martyred. Um, these are three things that they all have in common. All of these three sermons make reference to God's people in history. All of them go back to the Old Testament. And, and, and Sunday school teachers, let this be a great encouragement to you. See, as, as our young people, as we grow up and we learn the Old Testament... It is is essential that we do this, but not just the old, the new as well. But, But see what Paul is doing. That was their Bible. It was the Old Testament. And he goes to the Old Testament and starts there showing, in essence, this, that the promise of the Messiah, those types and those prophecies were all pointing to the Lord Jesus. So they all have this in common. They go to the history of God's people and then they claim... Jesus is the promised Messiah. Peter's sermon did that, Stephen's sermon did that, and now Paul's sermon does that. And thirdly, not only do they claim Jesus is the Messiah, they all did this. They culminated, they culminated their sermons in the resurrection of Jesus as, as the pivotal proof that Jesus was the Messiah. The one thing that they connected their assertions proving the identity of Jesus was primarily the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and they all claimed to be witnesses and they were able to do that Peter had seen Jesus Stephen was there in those very days Paul saw Jesus on the road to Damascus so he saw that he was not dead that he was alive and so all of these sermons have these things in common. Looking at the history, saying that Jesus is the one who fulfills the promises, and His resurrection proves His identity. So that about the structure. Now thirdly, let's look at the essence of these sermons. In the essence will return a little bit to what, what we said here. Um, the essence is primarily twofold which is a little bit of what i just said this focus on history the most of what we read you noticed was was the history he starts saying our people were slaves in egypt we were delivered from egypt we were 40 years in the wilderness god was patient with us there was a time of the judges and then there were the time of the kings and then through david there was a promise of a seed and that's where Jesus comes in. And John the Baptist proclaimed Him. So, so there's this focus on history. And then there's the focus on the resurrection of Jesus. In a sense, you would say that those are the two points of the sermon. Well, let's, let's look at this focus um, on history. Um, the history of God's people. We, we can make this assertion that all of Jewish history. History culminated in the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice, as soon as we say this, we're also saying another assertion. Not only did all of Jewish history culminate in Jesus, but since Jesus is to be a light to the Gentiles, which is the rest of the people of the world, you could really say that all of human history culminates in Jesus. Well, what is the very last event of human history? What will end human history on this earth as we know it is the coming of Jesus. But we only learn that the culmination of human history is Jesus when we look at the culmination of the Jewish history. And this is exactly what Peter did. This is what Stephen did. This is now what Paul does. And, and you know, you know how later Paul will be criticized for denying or not showing so much honor to the law of God and even you would think to the people of God and and that is absolutely not true you you notice how he exalts that reality in verse 17 he says the God of this people of Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people they were privileged because through them God manifested these truths but it wasn't a truth just to the Jews. It would end up being to the whole world. But of course they had this peculiar place. And Paul is showing his love and thankfulness for how God has chosen the Jewish people. And and beloved, this is then how we need to understand when we open our Old Testament. It, it's not just a history book of a people. And then you hear, let me read the history book of the Egyptians. And let me hear the history book of... of some tribe in Africa. When you open God's Word, it is not just a history book, it is a history that culminates in Jesus. The existence of Israel as a people, their pilgrimages, their exiles, their deliverances, their kings, their battles, their conquests, their, their law and their prophets, all were pointing all culminated and climaxed in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So You notice that he went to King David, and from King David, he went to Jesus. And then he presented John the Baptist as the one who said, I'm not the Messiah, he is, and pointed to Jesus as well. He got someone from... From, who had heard many promises that it would be his seed, David. And then he got John the Baptist, who was also prophesied in the Old Testament, who would be preparing the way of the Messiah. And he uses these two men to say, see, they both point to the Lord Jesus. David is the greater than... Jesus is the greater than David. And he is the one whose way was prepared by John the Baptist. All of Jewish history culminates in Christ. And all of human history culminates in Christ. So that's when we think of the focus of history. But then l- let's talk for a second about this other essence of this whole sermon, w- which is regarding the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. You notice that that, that took a good portion. Um, as soon as Christ is mentioned as the one who who is this Messiah, verse 29 is where we hear of his death, that he's placed on the tree but then we read that he was laid in a sepulcher so that's the death of the messiah but then verse 30 says but god raised him from the dead and he was seen many days of them which came up with him from galilee to jerusalem who are his witnesses unto the people And we declare unto you, glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, and that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm. And then he brings a psalm. Thou art my God, this day have I begotten thee. And as concerning that he raised him from the de- up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption. He said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Wherefore he saith also in another psalm, Thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. From Psalm 16. See, this whole portion, verses 29, all the way to 35, is a focus on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And and we can say this assertion, Jesus' resurrection is what confirms His identity as the promised Messiah. It it seals His identity. And when, when I say seals, in a sense I'm meaning that there were many other signs that proved that He was the Messiah... And in and of themselves they are powerful. But the resurrection seals them all. And and this is why I say this. Let's look at all the signs in a list form that came before. The Lord Jesus gave many other signs. He walked on water. He healed many sick people and even dead people. He rose from the grave. And He created bread and fish and fed thousands of people. He healed people who had that dreaded and incurable disease of leprosy. And He delivered people who were possessed of devils, even if it were legions of them. But imagine if Jesus had done all of those miracles, but remained in the grave and never risen. This is what I mean, that all of these miracles, as powerful as they were, we would only look upon Jesus as a more powerful Moses, as it were. Because he's still in the grave. And This is why the resurrection of Christ has this pinnacle, as it were, to the whole ministry of Jesus. Because it was the one miracle where he operated being dead. Speaking then of God's operation, approving His work, and the Spirit's power to give Him who was dead life. So when Christ comes forth out of the grave, all of those signs of the past, they, they have a power to them. They, they, they have um, the full effect. If He had remained in the grave... We would just look upon Jesus as a mighty prophet. But that would be all. But he's not just a prophet. He's the prophet with a capital P. He is the Messiah. And the true Messiah, and this is what many Jewish people had to understand. They had to realize that in the Old Testament there were prophecies that the Messiah would die. They, they were misinformed. They were thinking that the Messiah would only be glorious and never suffer death. And to them, seeing Christ go to, the, go to the cross meant He was not the Messiah. But it's because they didn't understand Scripture really well. So look at Isaiah 53, 8, that spoke not just of suffering, but even of death. Isaiah 53, if I start in verse 8, He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare His generation? For He was cut off out of the land of the living. That means He will die for the transgression of my people was he stricken and he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his dead death but then we find words that refer to resurrection he shall see his seed he shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the lord shall prosper in his hand he shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. That can only happen if there is a rising from the grave. Another portion is Daniel 9.26 that we read, And after threescore and two um, weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And then later we read of Messiah in Daniel 9 confirming his covenant. So the Messiah that would be cut off would still be a Messiah who would be living. Death and resurrection. So the resurrection of Jesus guaranteed everything. That that was part of who the Messiah was supposed to be. And this is, in a sense, this is what what the apostles were informing the people... You all who rejected Jesus, you weren't aware of this one reality. You you rejected Him because of His sufferings and death. But that's even part of what had to be fulfilled. And and, and the fact that He arose from the grave seals that matter. You, you could see how they would have absolutely no power if they were to just say that He died and He's still dead. So the very fact that He arose from the grave just... just Put everything together and gave them the strength and gave them the authority. And and this is what they would put in these sermons. The history that culminated in Jesus. And then the resurrection that sealed and proved the identity of Jesus. And Matthew Henry says this, This was the great truth that was to be preached. For it is the main pillar, the resurrection of Jesus, by which the whole fabric of the gospel is supported, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And think how precious it is, beloved, that we have 52 special days to celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ per year. Every Lord's Day, every Sunday, we are celebrating Easter. We are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. We need to always keep this in mind. Don't allow the yearly Easter celebration confuse us. We need to realize that yearly one, yes, we can have a focus and be very glad and sing certain hymns. But let us remember that it continues seven days later and then seven days later and today. Even though we focused on the death of Christ this morning, the only reason we can have any kind of gratitude and joy in the Lord's Supper is that He did not stay dead. He arose from the grave. And this was the essence of the sermon of Paul. The history of God's people culminated in Christ. The resurrection of Christ proved the identity of Christ. So you you can clearly understand so you and I must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. and be, Before we go to the application in just a little bit, there's one more thing to talk about in terms of, of sermon. We're seeing this sermon. We see the history. We see the, this focus also in the resurrection. Now, this, there's this one detail. Notice the priority in evangelism. The priority of Paul in preaching this sermon is preaching this sermon. And not... His example. The reason I say this is because Paul, of all people, had, of course, something very powerful without doubt, and he did make use of his experience at certain occasions, notably. In moments that weren't so much like the preaching of God's word, but more in the sense of sharing or evangelizing, or, or in a tribunal setting where he needs to give some kind of defense of who he is. So I'm not saying that there's no place to share your personal experience. And we find several places that Paul did record it. But this is a sermon, and he doesn't do it. And, and, and it's helpful. It's, it's really encouraging. Because imagine if every time Paul preached, he did mention how he was converted. Really, it would develop among us that when we preach the word, we must bring something of our experience. If every time Paul did that, it, it probably would have developed where every preacher would feel like they need to do that. But it's not every time that Paul did that. And, and it seems less often than not Paul did that and this is what I mean by uh, the priority in evangelizing and the priority in preaching is that we do preach the word and not us there is a place to share what God did to our hearts but it shouldn't take the central place and, and what God is saying is this the power to save souls is not what I did to you but what I do through Christ Proclaim Jesus, who He is, Proclaim that the history of God's people culminate in my Son, and proclaim that the resurrection of Jesus um, approves who He is, and I will use that in the hearts of souls to save and who will He save, those who have been ordained to eternal life. See, that's what God uses in a priority. So understand that. I'm not saying that it would be wrong for you to one day with a friend say, let me share with you how God saved me. Look at the book I was reading or this was a sermon that I heard. I have it in a, in a CD here. Let me share it with you. God used this sermon to save my life. There is a place for that. But see, there's a place for that. It's not the priority. It is not center stage. That is important to note, because in many churches, um, testimonies almost become the central thing. There may be a sermon of 20-30 minutes, and then somebody comes and gives his testimony. Then somebody else comes and gives his testimony. Maybe the pastor gave his testimony. And, And the focus is all, look at me, look at me. So we need to be careful. But we also need to understand that What I'm saying does not mean that there is no place for the testimony. Because when we read what God did to Paul, we we see it's powerful. God uses that. See, there's a place for it. But there's a priority. The priority is always the word proclaimed. And so, so now, just briefly, the application. So after Paul speaks of the history, and after he then centers upon the resurrection of Jesus... If you go to verse 38, that's where the application comes in. Notice even in his words, he says, after he says, but he whom God raised again saw no corruption. That was the whole exposition. Now comes the application. Be it known unto you, therefore... And the word therefore even shows. Okay, now, now this is, this is what all this message means to your heart. And that's what we mean by application. He's not exposing anymore, he's applying. Men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. Now let me speak of one thing. I, I mentioned it in brief we need to understand that the things we do in church it's not that we woke up or we talked as elders and deacons and thought isn't this a good idea let's do it yes it's new that's even the dangerous word no we do in essence what's old I've been exposing this sermon, and it's been the exposition today, and now I'm going to apply, because it's what Paul did. And now next Lord's Day, I'll be preaching another sermon, and it will have exposition, and it will have application. And and you should look at that and say, why is pastor doing that? Because we have, as it were, a divine mandate to do it. It's an example and, and because we look at Scripture, and we look at it, and we say, if this is what God gave us as a model, as a pattern, then it is what is best. So let's do it. Let's do what God gave us. I mean, how much better can it be? And in this world, it doesn't work that way. You, you hear people just thinking, we tried this new technique, and look, it worked. And this new technique, and look, it worked. And, and in their minds, the mindset is, if it works, then it's a good technique. And, and then they get into crevices and in areas that really aren't even ethical or biblical. And see, some things that work are not even right. So we need to be always very careful. Um... That, that whole venue of thinking is what we call pragmatism. To just do what seems to work. And, and, and when we do that, we're, we're losing the privilege of doing what works through a divine mandate. Because if God gave us this, ma- this, this method, this pattern, we should go to it because it works in God's own timetable. See, a lot of people would see, well, yeah, some people believe, but some people don't, didn't. Um, could it be that Paul didn't use a good technique? There can be people who even look this way critically at Paul's sermons. We, we can't do that. We need to realize, no, there was sovereignty, ordaining things. Those who were ordained to believe did believe. And, and God used that sermon and the method that Paul used to save those whom God wanted to save. And so just a, a word about example. Now, just looking at the application proper, this is in essence what Paul does. He gives one last declaration that this message is preaching unto you forgiveness of sins. Um, he's Putting together two things. He's already said this is a word of salvation. He said it is glad tidings. And now he's saying one more thing in verse 38. That he is preaching the forgiveness of sins. And and young people, this is what God's word is doing. It, it is saying that salvation, it is the good tidings. And the good tidings is that there is forgiveness. It, Salvation is not entirely made of forgiveness. But forgiveness is in a sense the foundation. You can have no salvation without beginning with forgiveness. But it's not just forgiveness of course. It is also a life of holiness. It is a life of worship. It is the hope of heaven. Salvation includes all of that. Salvation is definitely the big picture. But one way to describe who is saved is to say those who are forgiven so he declares this forgiveness and then in verse 39 he will explain how you and I can be forgiven He he is, in his application, he's not just putting the person into a position of, of, like a challenged position. He is informing. He is guiding souls by the hand and saying, if you would be saved, if you would receive these glad tidings and be forgiven, this is what you must do. Look at verse 39. By Him, meaning the Lord Jesus, all that believe are justified from all things, from which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. Now, translate that we're justified with the thought of being made righteous. And by Him, the Lord Jesus, all that believe are made righteous from all things, from which ye could not be made righteous by the law of Moses. He's not commanding here people to believe, but He is saying, you will only be saved if you believe. You need to believe in Jesus. This Jesus whom I've proclaimed is the culmination of our history. This Jesus who arose from the grave and this proclaims His identity. Beloved, you must believe in Him. And when you do, you will be declared righteous even the law which is divine and heavenly does not have the power to do that and this of course spoke to the very heart of those who were in that room because especially those who would have been from the from the realm of the pharisees their venue their theology was i will look at the law and as i obey it and as i am faithful i will be declared righteous and paul is saying that will never happen The law does not have that power. It wasn't even meant to do that. What the law does is show you that you need salvation, but it will not give it to you. But if you believe in Jesus, you will be made righteous. And so you understand right there that the Jewish mind understood that to believe in Jesus meant no works whatsoever. Because believe in Jesus stood opposite to um, f- being under the law to be made righteous. Um, it, it is a little hard today because there are even evangelicals who think of faith as a work of the heart. I believed. I was insightful enough to believe, and they see faith as it were of something of originating in our hearts. Because they get confused that, if, of course, we are supposed to believe. The Holy Spirit doesn't come and believe for us. But that does not mean that we are the ones who originate faith. But the, 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 the Jews would understand, okay, obeying the law is works. Faith means not works. It means I have no merit. It means there's no glory for me. It is all God's doing. So Calvin explains this little portion where he's making clear that by faith you are made righteous with no need of the law and to to try to be made righteous. He says this, Paul shows how man obtains the righteousness of Christ to wit when they receive it by faith. And that which faith does obtain is not obtained by any merits of works. True biblical faith means no works so when Paul says to the group of people believe he is telling them don't, don't do any work of yourselves don't, don't think that it depends on you don't think that it's through your merit. just look to Christ and trust Him and those Jews understood you, 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 mean, you mean nothing to do with the Sabbath nothing to do with, with, with obeying the first or second or third commandment nothing to do with what's the greatest law and the lesser law uh, the, the, the second law No, believe in Christ. It's not your walk. It's not your faithfulness. It is Christ. And trusting that He is the Savior. And that, beloved, is the thrust of the application to this group. This group is being told, you must believe. And and this sermon comes to your heart too. This is the application to your heart. Believe. In the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be declared righteous. There's this one more part of the application. It is a warning, verse 40, a very solemn warning. He says, Beware therefore, lest that come upon you which is spoken of in the prophets. And he quotes Habakkuk 1, verse 5. Behold ye despisers and wonder and perish. For I work a work in your days. A work which ye shall in no wise believe. Though a man declared unto you. So he's putting this prophecy of Habakkuk as if he's the man declaring it to the group of people. And there would be a moment where that people would not believe the wonderful thing that would be being preached by that man. And Paul is saying, don't let that be fulfilled in your heart. Beloved, and I say the same to you. You Entering right now to the response to the message. How will you respond to this message? Will you allow that passage to be fulfilled? If you're not a believer yet. If you remain an unbeliever, you are someone who's in this very moment fulfilling Habakkuk 1 5. You are hearing this declaration from Apostle Paul, and I'm simply repeating it to you. You are hearing these wonders, and you are not believing. And even though this is a prophecy, Paul is saying, Don't let that be fulfilled in you. How? By believing. By trusting Christ, you will not be part of those who were so foolish. But in those days that Paul preached this, when we look at the response, and this is our last point, we see there was a response of faith, there was a response of unbelief. There was only those two. Of course there were there were some who were probably thinking I, I want to hear more before I can really believe God is working in every heart but either someone is a true believer or not and sometimes a true believer doesn't know if he is saved yet that can happen there are many people who are true believers truly saved They do have a true and sincere faith, only it is so little, and they are so blind to it. They don't sense the assurance of their salvation, so they think perhaps they're not saved yet. But my question would be: If you fall in that category, I would still put before you: Would you you go back to listen to Apostle Paul the next um, Sabbath that he was begged by one group to be there? Would you go back? And as you would be in that second audience, remember the the, the Jews who were rejecting the message were so enraged to see the whole city turning on, turning up to go to church, as it were. And they had already rejected Jesus. And, And in that very service, they were debating, they were even blaspheming. Where would you side on that day? Would you side with the blasphemers? Or would you side with those who were astonished at the word that apostle Paul was preaching and then there would have been other occasions there were those who followed Paul would you follow Paul and Barnabas to hear more or would you go with that group of pharisees who are saying all those horrible things and of course it's it's a lot of gossip and they're thinking of ways that they're going to to try to combat Paul and Barnabas where would be your allegiance and see notice that there would be a lot of things going a lot of social persecution here because if you were part of that group and you're no longer there and they see that you're following Paul and Barnabas they're going to come after you and they're going to say listen you're you're one of our foremost pharisees and you're going to start listening to those men what's wrong with you what would you say would you be ashamed of the gospel of Christ? And I don't doubt that there were some who were tottering. They were, they were feeble of faith. And they were scared to lose the favor of those Pharisees. That, that, that had meant everything to him. That camaraderie. And, and, and there was brotherhood there. And, and now you're being slighted. And your family is being thought of less. And, and, and you're sometimes within. But as soon as they're not looking. You're listening to Paul if you can. But it comes a moment. Where when you realize that the history of your people culminated in Jesus and you're agreeing, it did. And you're beginning to agree, yes, that man that died is arisen, that declares who he is. And you know what happens to the true believer? And that group of Pharisees comes again and they say to you, What's what's wrong with you? We're we're going to start giving you less favor in our meetings. And you're going to decrease and not increase in in your rabbinic duties and stature among us. And you would get the power to look in their eyes and say, If only you believed the things I now believe. My sins are forgiven. They are cleansed. And not by my observing the law. It's by all the work of Christ. I'll tell you. I believe everything, every word that man Paul is saying. And you should trust Jesus too. He's our Messiah. Abraham saw him and rejoiced. This Jesus is the greater than Jonah. He's the greater than David. He is the seed of the woman. He died and arose again. And they would look at you and say, You're one of them and persecute you. Persecution began. And the more you would associate with Paul and Barnabas, the more you would be hated. Let me ask you, where would you be? Would you be scared of all that? if your life was on the line and you would be the next Stephen, would you say, no, 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 you got it all wrong. I'm not, I'm not one of them. Don't stone me. Those were the rejectors. See, beloved, you have to understand this. If you're still someone who says, I still do not believe, if you're still waiting for God to save you, You you need to understand this tension. That means you're an unbeliever. That means you're rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ. It is never a safe place to be. And yes, this very text brought the sovereignty of God to bear. That who were the ones believing? As many as were ordained to eternal life believers. Verse 48. And I want to conclude with this. What does this mean? This means that if you're saved, and for you to be saved, you need the power of God. You cannot do it. You have no strength. You have no power. If you're not saved, I agree with you that it is because you can't. But you also have to agree with God and His Word. And say that it's also because you don't want to. And the moment you even confess, I don't want to. And I can't. Then you can look to God and say, Lord, give me the heart and give me the capacity. The very fact that God is the one who saves, beloved, means that you go to God to be saved. The very fact that He ordains all those who would believe means that you then go to Him and plead and beg and confess your sins, even the sins of not desiring to believe, as well as the sin of not being able to believe. Remember, you've heard perhaps in several sermons, the fact that we in our nature cannot believe is not an excuse. It is a sin. A lot of people who know enough theology, they they think the fact I can't believe, you can see how that makes the unbeliever happy. Because if it is after all that God in His sovereignty has to save me, and I can't, well then it's really in a sense His fault, not mine, and I'm excused. That's the mind of the unbeliever who knows theology, especially Calvinism. But the moment we understand God's Word... We stop excusing because we realize the fact I can't is a sin. Because connected with the fact that I can't is the fact that I don't want to. I have no heart. I need both the will and the ability. And in Adam, I have neither. It is not God's fault because God never forced Adam to sin. Not a single unbeliever will be able to point their finger to God and say, Lord, you did not give me faith. God will say, you never wanted faith. So confess it. Confess it to the Lord. I never desired it, Lord. And I will never be able to. So, since thou art the one who ordains, give me the power and give me the will. And see, you're hearing these words. God gave you ears to hear, and hearts to understand, and lips to be able to pray these very words back to God. And I understand you can't just repeat them, it can't be automatic. But you can do that. You can pray. You can look to heaven and say, save me, Lord Jesus. Because I can't do it. But there's more, Lord Jesus, I don't want to do it. That's how great my sin is. Do you believe? If there was persecution today, would you side with Paul and Barnabas? and be be expelled from the city or would you be scared of that just the last thought verse 52 and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Ghost Boys and girls, some of you young people heard persecution. And I'm talking about things that are hard and very sad and very dangerous. But look how precious and how true. Even in the midst of all this persecution, being expelled from cities, those who heard the gospel and are now saved, they're the disciples. And they're filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. There is joy even in the midst of affliction. Because this is how God protects and cares for His little flock that is growing. God is giving faith and He's giving courage. And He will do that to you too. The young people will never be scared of coming persecution because He'll fill you with the Holy Spirit and fill you with joy even in the midst of losing friends or losing jobs or losing freedom. We're losing life. We serve a Savior who died and arose from the grave. There's life after death. Even eternal life. For all who believe. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious, glorious God. How we thank Thee, Lord, for the word of this salvation. We thank Thee, Lord, for the glad tidings of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank Thee, Lord, that Paul has preached to us the forgiveness of sins. And we pray, Lord, that we would be as those who believe and are justified. Give us, Lord, this joy. Give us Thy Holy Spirit. Give us the confession, Lord, that we need Thy grace. We need Thy power to save us even to want to be saved and not only to, to be able to be saved. We pray, Lord, that Thou would open the hearts of unbelievers, that they would cease um, um, accusing, as it were, if not openly, certainly underhanded Thy sovereignty, and that they would say, Lord, I have not desired to be saved. We pray, Lord, that Thou would give them the desire. Give us, Lord, as believers, the desire to be holy. Lord, would we not also confess the same? Why do we sin? It's because we do not desire to be holy. In every sin we commit, Lord, it is our desire that goes and sins. Forgive us, Lord. Help us, Lord, to desire holiness, to desire Christ-likeness. We are so weak in ourselves. But we thank thee, Lord, for this, for this status of holiness in Christ through faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.